On February 25th, 2020, the Northrop Grumman Mission Extension Vehicle 1, or MEV-1, docked with the Intelsat-901 communications satellite. This was an important milestone moment in the history of space, as it was the first time two commercial satellites have ever docked with each other in orbit, a maneuver that may be important in several different ways in the coming decade. Future potential use cases in mind, the MEV-1 is actually part of a larger program being pursued by Northrop Grumman. The intention is to build an in-orbit service industry capable of, in this case, docking with older satellites that are running low on fuel and providing them with the fuel they require to become operable once more, at least for a time. The aforementioned Intelsat 901 is 19 years old, and it recently had to be moved to a much higher orbit, what's often called a graveyard orbit, because it was running critically low on fuel, and would not have been able to move itself out of the way if a collision with another satellite was imminent. The higher, that is, further from Earth, graveyard orbit is meant to prevent such collisions, as it's a larger area and more sparsely populated, as it's not as useful for most satellite-related purposes. Being able to dodge and weave in this way is fairly vital for still operable satellites, as it's getting somewhat cluttered up there in popular orbits, and although space is big, these satellites have to semi-regularly use their thrusters to prevent collisions with their neighbors and with random bits of space junk, natural pieces of rock, but also an abundance of paint flakes, pieces of metal, and other space-age detritus that's broken off of other satellites gone missing from the International Space Station, or otherwise ended up orbiting Earth, untethered from any larger object. The Space Data Association, which keeps tabs on these sorts of objects, anything larger than 10 centimeters is tracked, warn the owners of satellites when their infrastructure will potentially collide with one of these chunks of whatever, when the probability of what they call conjunction reaches 1 in 10,000, They send the company that owns the satellite in question a warning so they can take evasive action if they so choose. Many do. Mission extension vehicles like the MEV-1 are of increasing interest to all sorts of companies, from telecommunications entities to those that provide services to militaries, because first, it's expensive to launch satellites and to get them where they need to be, fully operational, and second, because there is that ever-increasing chance of collisions, which could in the worst case, spin out of control into a debris cascade. That might mean one satellite hitting another, creating dozens or hundreds of new pieces of debris as a consequence. And because this is happening in space, in orbit, those pieces of debris do not encounter any friction that might slow them down. So they keep moving at a very high speed round and round the planet, flying like bullets until they hit something else, like perhaps another satellite creating more debris. The more pieces of debris of this kind whizzing around the planet, the more danger all operable satellites are in, and the higher the likelihood that some of them will collide with something else, creating more debris and further increasing the chances of such collisions in the future. The nightmare scenario is that at some point, there will be so much debris around the planet that some orbits 
perhaps especially the most popular and useful ones, will become essentially unusable. It just won't be practical to keep moving the active satellites around to dodge these ever-present debris-bullet threats. This is why another responsibility of future MEVs is to move defunct satellites out of harm's way, up into a graveyard orbit, so that they're not gumming up the works and are far less likely to become clouds of dangerous orbital detritus. Evolving space-based regulations are incentivizing the creation of these sorts of investments as well. Many satellite-building companies are introducing automated dodging capabilities into their new models, but that doesn't mean they'll never run out of the fuel that enables them to move. This is why U.S.-based companies building satellites must ensure that any non-functioning satellite they put into orbit will burn up in the atmosphere within 25 years of ceasing operation. That means getting one satellite into the correct orbit so that slowly but surely it winds its way downward toward Earth at an angle that will cause it to burn up in the atmosphere. Making this happen, of course, either requires being very careful with the finite amount of fuel in the satellite's tank, keeping enough on hand to make that end-of-life maneuver feasible, or figuring out a way to somehow nudge or refuel the satellite after the fact. And that's one role these mission extension vehicles can play, and are beginning to play, in this industry. Not just extending the practical life of satellites, but ensuring that their death is in the best interest of other surviving satellites, and anything else that we might want to put into space in the future. Operating as orbital tow trucks, pulling the dead hulks of old satellites into a safer location that will eventually result in their safely burning up, rather than adding to the cloud of garbage that's already causing so many problems up there. What I'd like to talk about today are some interesting happenings within the satellite industry, especially in the field of satellite imaging, and what we might expect to happen next in this relatively old but rapidly evolving field. You are listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. It's a high time for satellites, no space pun intended, and that's especially true in the sub-industry of satellite imaging. The ICE Cloud and Land Elevation Satellite 2, or ICESAT 2, was launched in 2018 as one component of NASA's larger Earth Observing System, which itself began in 1997 as the core of NASA's Earth Science Enterprise a broad-scope, long-term research program intended to look at and better understand the Earth as opposed to other planets or heavenly bodies, and which has launched about 30 satellites over the course of its existence, with purposes ranging from measuring Earth's gravity field to improving our understanding of the Sun and its relation to the Earth. About a dozen of the satellites launched for this program are still active. Most are still up there. They're just no longer operational similar to the defunct communications satellite mentioned in the intro, but all of them have taught us a great deal about our planet and the forces that act upon it, not to mention providing us with a whole lot of incredible images that have served the secondary purpose of getting people who might not otherwise have cared about such things, professionally or casually, interested in planetary science. This particular satellite, the ICESat-2, has provided us with a great deal of new data about Antarctica's ice, and particularly 
where it's accumulating and where it's disappearing, which is helping us better understand the ongoing and potential future rise in oceanic levels worldwide. Satellite imaging has also been getting attention for some other, quite different, use cases, though. Back in the Cold War era, when many happenings around the world were at least partially shaped by a tense standoff between the two economic and military powers of the day, the United States and the Soviet Union, the leadership of the authoritarian-led USSR was opaque, to say the least. What that meant in practice was that, while power fluctuations could be gauged fairly easily within the United States, as politicians maneuvered and wrangled for power, often quite publicly, and business people were in the tabloids and financial rags, within the Soviet Union, power was largely centralized at the top, and a very small cadre of people decided pretty much everything. Because of that power focus, it was possible for immense shifts in influence, and even complete reconfigurings of the leadership hierarchy in the country, to change seemingly overnight, without forewarning to anyone outside of that structure. Everything was kept very hush-hush, and that lack of reliable information from the country's power structure meant that other governments around the world, and especially that of the USSR's main counterbalance, the U.S., did what they could to try to read the tea leaves, as it were, in order to interpret what might be happening within the halls of power. What emerged was a collection of analytical methods predicated on what could be gleaned about how power worked within the Soviet Union. This field, often referred to as Kremlinology, after the seat of power within Russia back then and today, had experts paying very close attention to details that they thought might, maybe, shine some light on what was happening behind the scenes within the Soviet government. So where different leaders were seated at various government functions, where they stood and whether they showed up in official photographs, who was mentioned how many times and in what context within the pages of the government's official mouthpiece paper, Pravda, and which portraits of whom hung where within government buildings. This read-between-the-lines method of gleaning information helped both the U.S. and Soviet governments to some degrees, as it sometimes allowed the Soviet state to provide information to the U.S. government without having to outright say anything. It provided them with a means of communicating while also maintaining deniability, should anything ever be brought up more overtly. But a lot of the time, Kremlinologists were just attempting to understand the Soviet leadership's strongman model of internal politicking, so they could ascertain who held what kind of power, and where leverage might then be applied, or in some cases, what might happen next, how best to prepare for the next stage in the standoff. The piece I'd like to unspool today deals with a very similar situation, but in a more modern incarnation. This piece comes from the Washington Post, and it's entitled, Where's North Korea's Kim? Let's see what the satellites say. North Korea is a strange anachronism in the 21st century. In 1945, when World War II had officially ended, the Korean Peninsula, which had been taken over by Imperial Japan in 1910, and was then held until that point when they were defeated during the war, was divided into a north and south portion. The northern portion, occupied by the Soviet Union, and the southern portion, occupied by the United States. The shape of Korea today is largely the consequence of this power struggle, a struggle which eventually became the Cold War, and which began basically as soon as World War II was over, 
the Soviets and the U.S., emerging as the two global powers before the dust had even settled on that conflict. The authoritarian, ostensible communists were building up their sphere of influence at the same time that the United States was building up its liberal democratic capitalistic sphere of influence. And the arrangement here was meant to make both sides feel like they were good in the area, and the other side was not gaining an uncontested foothold in this fairly central, vital part of the world. As a result of that split, South Korea became a capitalistic democratic country, and North Korea became a fairly extreme cult of personality-driven authoritarian government, which looks like nothing so much as a military junta led by a family dynasty, the Kim family, the first of whom was Kim Il-sung, the leader of the Workers' Party in the area, when World War II ended, and he was appointed as the first leader of the new country of North Korea, or the Democratic People's Republic of Korea, as it's officially known, by the Soviet Union's leadership. The Korean War, seen by many as a proxy conflict between the Soviet Union and the United States, took place mere years after World War II ended, and it was an effort by Kim Il-sung to unify the peninsula under his government by invading the South. The People's Republic of China sent unofficial, quote-unquote, volunteer troops across the border to fight in this conflict on the side of the North, and the Soviet Union provided armaments and other types of support to them as well, while the United States stepped in on the side of the South, providing troops and weapons, and famously considering dropping some atomic bombs on North Korean and Chinese targets, but fortunately deciding not to do so. The end result of this conflict was an uneasy armistice that brought about a ceasefire between the North and South in 1953, but no peace was ever officially declared, and the countries have continued to periodically shoot at each other across the dividing line that stands between them, and the North has periodically committed what we might call acts of terror by bombing South Korean interests and kidnapping and assassinating people from across the border. North Korea today is often referred to as the Hermit Kingdom, as they keep their people fairly well isolated from the rest of the world and from any real, reliable information coming from outside the bubble of propaganda that they are kept in from birth until death by their government. They also keep their people more or less imprisoned by preventing travel outside the country and severely limiting travel by outsiders into the country. Within their own borders, too. The government has absolute unchallenged control over every aspect of a citizen's life, including ending a person's life without fair trial if they choose to. For any reason or no reason, there is no expectation of a functioning rule of law within North Korea. All of which is to say, North Korea is a very unusual, disconnected portion of the planet that is immensely impoverished compared to most other nations today. But also, because of that disconnect, they are beyond easy surveillance. The transmission of people is controlled, so you can't easily slip spies into the country, much less into the ruling dynasty's inner circle. And because they're not connected to the global internet, at least not casually in a non-military capacity for the most part, there are not many opportunities to spy on them through their communications either. 
which is in stark contrast to most other countries today, within which, not exclusively but increasingly, spy agencies are able to use their ubiquitous communication tools and channels as a means of gathering information about who's doing what, when, and why. This story is about a recent hullabaloo caused by the seeming disappearance of Kim Jong-un, the current dynastic ruler of North Korea. Kim is relatively young, He was born in 1984, 1983, or 1982, depending on whether you believe United States, South Korean, or North Korean official records on the matter, but his health is thought to be quite bad. Reports suggest that he's diabetic and suffers from hypertension, he smokes like a chimney, and he has been seen limping, using a walking stick for support at official events. He's also quite overweight, officially designated as morbidly obese, and a few times when he's disappeared from public life for more than a few weeks in the past, speculation and some evidence has indicated that he was having medical procedures conducted, though the precise nature of those procedures, and whether or not that is totally true, is unknown. In mid-April of 2020, Kim did not appear at a ceremony marking his grandfather's birthday, And that is the original Kim who founded the country with the Soviet Union's help, remember. Which is quite a surprise, as this is a major national holiday in the country, and one that he has always prominently appeared at previously. He was then absent from all public events for nearly a month, raising questions within the international intelligence community about whether the leader of North Korea might be incapacitated or dead, which would trigger a sequence of events leading to the inauguration of a new leader, based on dynastic rules, but also, no doubt, some amount of cloak-and-dagger-style political intrigue and power struggle within the country's halls of power. What followed was a Kremlinology-style investigation of satellite images of North Korea, documenting the young dictator's possible location based on the whereabouts and readiness levels of his personal train, the alignment of a yacht that he keeps docked at a private harbor near a favorite villa within a complex where he often spends his time, and in a dozen other ways checking to see what these areas of interest look like compared to their normal baseline appearance to determine if there was any indication of where the North's dear leader might be, dead or alive. South Korean intelligence, for their part, maintained throughout that they weren't hearing any unusual chatter, and that they considered the situation to be baseline, nothing to report upon in regards to the health and continued existence of Kim. Other governments, based on anonymous reports they were hearing from sources, disputed that assessment, and this investigation of satellite imagery was kicked off as a result, presumably by militaries around the world, but also, somewhat publicly, by Korea-watching journalistic entities located around the world. These journalistic entities eventually concluded the same as the South Korean government, that Kim was probably just hiding out, waiting for the worst of the pandemic to subside, from the comfort of one of his luxurious private strongholds, before going back out into public. The first week of May 2020, these analyses seemed to prove accurate, as new footage was released by North Korean state television, showing Kim at the opening of a fertilizer factory, hanging out, smoking, joking around with people, and walking normally, everything seemingly in order. There's a chance, of course, that this footage was somehow doctored or the scenario staged. A great many things within North Korea are scripted to present a certain front or communicate a certain message to the outside world, 
So that is not a foregone possibility here. But it would seem, for the moment at least, that the country's young leader is almost certainly very much alive, and as a result, the speculation about who will take his place can be set aside for the moment. Now, this whole scenario is fairly strange and compelling in a variety of different ways, but what's especially interesting to me about this particular sequence of events is that journalists were able to use satellites to do what amounts to high-level espionage work within a country that, again, is often referred to as the Hermit Kingdom because of how cut off they are from everything and how inaccessible they tend to be. That's pretty incredible. The ingenuity of those doing this kind of research, this kind of journalism, is impressive. But the tools they're using, and that such tools are so close at hand and accessible, is also fascinating because of what it meant for this story, but also because of what it implies about the future and what else we might be able to do with these newfound, but arguably at this moment at least, underutilized powers that we wield. Back in mid-September of 2019, Saudi Arabia's oil production was truncated by a series of fairly brazen attacks claimed by the Houthis in Yemen as a response to the Saudis' intervention in the ongoing Yemeni civil war. Drones and cruise missiles of Iranian manufacture, though Iran denies any involvement in the attacks, were used to cause large explosions and fires at oil processing facilities, which were put out within a few hours, but which nonetheless required that these facilities be shut down for repairs, which cut Saudi oil production by about half, which in turn truncated global oil production at the time by about 5%. This attack, the downswing in production, and then the surprise faster-than-anticipated repairs conducted by the Saudis on their facilities, caused quite a bit of drama within the oil and oil futures markets worldwide when this all went down. And although a great deal of the data about production and other such numbers is provided to traders by their governments, none of these numbers provide up-to-the-minute enough information for traders moving at the pace of today's markets to actually utilize that data profitably. Some of these traders, because of this dynamic, have turned to upstart satellite imaging companies, to buy observational data about potential production indicators, like images of flaring activity at oil sites, and images of tankers and other components of the global oil cycle, which can be counted by anyone with sufficiently powerful satellite images. The person who has such information can then, potentially at least, come to more accurate conclusions than the traders against whom they're competing, who lack that additional overhead view, data-driven insight. A similar dynamic played out more recently, in late April 2020, when simultaneous supply and demand shocks, amplified by conflict within the so-called OPEC Plus nations, that manifested in overproduction and a lack of price-setting cohesion amongst member states, led to a collapse in oil prices, a collapse that culminated in an unprecedented price drop for one type of U.S.-produced crude oil, to less than negative $37 a barrel. That negative territory pricing was not universal, but it was indicative of what was happening to oil prices worldwide, all of them experiencing a steep decline within a very short period. As in late 2019, after the Saudi oil infrastructure attacks, some traders decided to see what satellite imagery could tell them, hiring companies like Orbital Insight to snap photos from space of oil infrastructure worldwide, 
allowing them to see, for instance, how full oil tanks are at major oil storage sites around the world, and how productive various oil wells and processing facilities seem to be, based on the moving pieces and other indicators that they can make out from that altitude. These satellites can also track things like the number of cars on the road, which can help them project oil demand in the coming months and help them assess what kind of overall economic recovery can be expected, country to country, but even city to city and town to town. Orbital Insight and similar companies can also see when meatpacking plants are open and at what capacity they're operating based on the number of cars in the parking lot and the amount of lighting that comes from the windows and other supplementary data that they can collect, like the number of phone signals pinging a particular mobile phone tower, all of which can then be aggregated into data clusters that they sell to their clients, telling them, okay, this region is completely shut down, but this region is spinning back up, bringing more workers in on weekdays, and thus there's more traffic on the road and more impending demand for oil and other types of resources. Traders and other clients who can benefit from this type of information asset, then, are able to gather gobs of data of a type that, in relatively recent history, would only have been available to fairly wealthy governments. And even then, potentially not at this scale. The resolution on these satellite images tends to be of a very high quality, and the filters and supplementary systems that are applied to them like tracking the number of cars that pass through an area over a given period of time, make those fundamental chunks of media all the more valuable for some use cases. Fortunately, we are seeing the same increase in space-based Earth-facing capabilities within science-focused organizations as well. Satellite data recently indicated that oil and gas operations working in the Permian Basin the oil operations based in Texas and southeastern New Mexico are releasing methane at twice the average rate found in other major oil and gas harvesting regions around the United States. This is valuable information, in part because it allows these oil and gas companies to plug leaks that would otherwise cost them valuable gas resources. Those gases pumped into the atmosphere instead of being used for power. So detecting and plugging these leaks is a rare circumstance, in which what's good for the oil companies is also good for the environment. This data, by the way, was primarily collected using a tool called a tropospheric monitoring instrument, which allowed them to identify focuses of methane leakage within the United States by scanning the area for anomalies over the course of 11 months, and then filtering that data through a framework that allowed them to derive meaning from it. This is interesting, in part because of what it implies about what we might be able to do with this tool in the future, and in part because of what it implies about how other data-gathering tools might be used, and how we might be able to generate an informational layer across the planet, collecting all kinds of frequently updated information that we wouldn't have otherwise thought to consider or go out to collect specifically, and generating from that planetary data set new insights, patterns, and understandings as we figure out different ways to filter and process and remix it. We are, at the moment, looking at some very early outputs generated by the assets of a burgeoning private space industry, which is empowered in many ways by all the other technologies we've been working on in recent decades. Everything from tiny, high-quality cameras of the kind that can fit into a smartphone to the filters that we use to optimize digital photographs that we can then use for a variety of purposes. 
That said, even with all the neat current and potential future use cases in this space, there will be mistakes made along the way, as has been evidenced by another interesting, potentially very useful project that nonetheless has caused a great deal of trouble for some scientists and night sky enthusiasts of late. SpaceX, a commercial space technology company based in the U.S., has been developing a side project called Starlink, which, when completed, will hopefully be able to beam internet signals down to anywhere on the planet from a swarm of small satellites positioned strategically around the Earth. As of late April 2020, Starlink already has over 400 satellites in orbit, most of them operational, and they're launching new satellites, 60 at a time. They're currently planning to launch a beta internet service later in 2020, and although there's no real precedent for how well their service might do, a lot of people are watching their activities with interest because of what a successful launch of their service might mean for the world of telecommunications, especially in currently underserved parts of the world, but also for space travel and the satellite industry more broadly. Of late, though, most of the press Starlink has been getting has been about an unwelcome side effect of all their tiny satellites. Namely, that they have little lights built into their surfaces, and those lights are often visible from the ground, sometimes visible by the naked eye and sometimes through astronomical equipment. As a result, Starlink is being accused of both ruining the night sky for people who want to see the stars but can't because this swarm of satellites is getting in the way, while also being accused of ruining official scientific astronomical observations, some of them quite lengthy in duration, but now impossible to continue with because of the path these satellites take across the sky, and thus across the viewfinders of these night sky scanning instruments. The CEO of SpaceX, Elon Musk, has announced, as a result of this outcry, that they would dim the lights on the satellites and try to figure out a way to make them less overall reflective, but there's still concern from many, in part because of the ask-for-forgiveness-rather-than-permission approach that this company often takes, and in part because the company's plan is to eventually have around 12,000 satellites of this kind in orbit around the planet. So even if they're dimmer and painted black, there's a good chance that they'll still get in the way at times. No innovation comes without cost, and it'll be interesting to see how the governments of the world do their cost-benefit analyses when it comes to satellite-based tech. The privacy-invading potential of satellite images is a trade-off for the dictator-tracking and gas-leak-detecting capabilities of the same. And the star-blocking potential of satellite swarms is a major downside of having those swarms in place, feeding high-speed internet access to people around the world. The book that I'd like to recommend today is called Successful Aging, A Neuroscientist Explores the Power and Potential of Our Lives by Daniel Levitin. This book is essentially a collection of things to be thinking about when it comes to the concept of aging, and that includes the way that we think about aging, but also how we prepare ourselves for the different things that we can expect biologically and neurologically as we get older. 
Now, as somebody in his mid-30s, this is not something that I'm fixated on, but it is something that I think about, and I think we could all probably benefit from understanding that some of the decisions that we make today, whatever age we happen to be, might influence the quality of life that we're able to enjoy later in life to varying degrees. And the things that we might do differ based on our age, differ based on our circumstances, differ based on all kinds of different variables, but there are things that all of us can do to make it more likely that we'll have positive outcomes based on our definition of positive later in life. Now, if any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Successful Aging by Daniel Levitin. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find the show notes and transcript for this episode and every episode at letsknowthings.com. You can find my other podcast at brainlenses.com or by searching for Brain Lenses wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. Feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I'm Colin Wright at Facebook and at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so very much for listening. I'm Colin Wright and I'll talk to you again next week.